Good morning. Open with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to continue this morning the series that we started last week, uh, our Advent series. And we're going to move this week to the theme of promise made. I uh, heard a story this week about a lady who was, um, I don't know if she lived by herself or not, but she was home by herself, and uh, she started smelling something in her house. And she couldn't put her finger on what, exactly what it was, and she was thinking, is that, does it smell like something's burning, or, or what is it? And so she started kind of walking through her house to try to figure out what, what it was. And so she went to her kitchen, obviously thinking it might be a burning smell, and looked in the stove or oven, made sure nothing was on. Um, went through the bathroom and the other parts of the house and, and, and couldn't find what it was. And so eventually she made it down to her basement, uh, and, and down in the corner of the basement she had a desk, and under the desk was her dog, and her dog had been outside and had been sprayed by a skunk and had come in the house, right? Um, and when I was reading about this, I was thinking, you know, the dog was, was, he had gone down to the farthest part of the house, had gone to the farthest corner of the house, had gotten under the desk because he was trying to get rid of the smell, right? Um, but obviously we know, he didn't know because he's a dog, but, but obviously we know he was the smell, Right? He was trying to get away from himself, and, and he couldn't do that. The only way to, to, to remove that smell from himself, um, he needed his owner, that lady, to, to do that for him, right? to give him a bath in, in tomato juice or whatever it is that you do when you get sprayed by a skunk. Um, and, and as I was reading that story, I was thinking about uh, Pastor Jake's sermon from last week where he was preaching about, um, about promise needed, Right? And, and one thing we know from the Bible, one thing we see from the Bible is that we need uh, a promise from God. We need God to do something, right? Just like that dog that's trying to get away from himself, um, that, that's kind of like us trying to get away from our sin. We, we are the problem, right? It's not, it's not that, I mean, it is that we have a problem outside of us, but it's also that, that we are the problem on the inside. And if we're going to, uh, if, if that problem is going to be dealt with, if that, if that problem is going to be remedied, we need God to do something. Um, to, to change that. If you're at Genesis, uh, we're going to be in chapter 3 today, but I want us to, to kind of look back to, to these opening chapters of, of Genesis. And you may be familiar with Genesis chapter 1 and, and on into Genesis chapter 2. Uh, this is where we see the, the creation account where God has created the, the universe. And, uh, and, and we look through and down at uh, the end of verse 5, it says there was evening and morning the, the first day. Um, Go down to, to the end of verse 8. Uh, there was evening, there was morning the second day, and, and, and it goes on through. And he says down at the end of verse 10, God saw that, uh, that it was all good. And it goes down through verse 13. There was evening, morning the third day. And it continues this way, as you're aware of, all the way through the sixth day, right? And at the end of the sixth day, he looks at what he's made. God looks at what he's made, and he says, it's very good, Right? And, and often we've talked about and thought about that, that difference. Every other day it was good. On the sixth day it's, it's very good. What's the, what's the difference there? Um, and, and it may be that, that creation, people, man and woman, um, is kind of the height of creation. As, as I heard in Sunday school this morning, um, you know, we're the only part of creation that God speaks to. We're the only part of creation that God has a relationship with. And so there's something, there's something different there, right? It, it's very good because he's created uh, kind of the height of creation. 
But, but I think there may be a little bit more to it than that even. I think it may be that God's looking on the, on the last day, the sixth day, God's looking at, at everything he's made and he's seeing how his creation, all of creation is very good. How each part of creation is doing what he created for it to do. And each part of creation is relating to all the other parts of creation exactly the way that he meant for them to. But it's not too much farther until uh, we begin to see that, that that gets messed up, right? If we go to the beginning of chapter 3, we see that the serpent is introduced here, right? And the serpent comes on the scene and tricks the woman. We're going to talk about more, more about that in a little bit. He tricks the woman, causes her to disobey God, and then she gives the fruit to her husband, Adam, and he also disobeys God. And so we get down toward the middle of, of chapter 3, going to the end of it, and we see... God comes to them and, and, and we see him give out consequences or punishment or results of uh, the disobedience that they have done, right? And we're going to skip the serpent for a minute because that's what we're going to come back to for the rest of the day. But, but look, at, look at verse 16. In verse 16, he says to the woman, God's speaking to the woman now because of her disobedience. He says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. And then he says, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Some translations may say he will rule over you harshly or rule you harshly or something like that. And, and we could talk a lot about that, but, but whatever's going on there, one thing we see for sure is this perfect relationship between the man and the woman is messed up now. They're not relating to each other. They're not going to relate to each other the way that they were meant to. If we continue in verse 17, Adam said, or to Adam, God said to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and you've also eaten of the tree that I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. And we see here in the, in the punishment to Adam that there's now a, a, a disruption between the, the relationship between Adam and, and the rest of creation, right? Adam and Eve and, and the ground even and the plants that are going to grow from, from the ground. And if you remember back earlier in, um, in, in chapter 3, before God starts giving out the punishments, look back to verse 8 in chapter 3. This is right after Adam and Eve have eaten from the tree they weren't supposed to. In verse 8, it says that they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. This is the first time we read in the Bible. This is pretty early on. It's just chapter 3, right? Pretty early on. But this is the first time we see in the Bible of someone being afraid of God. And they're not afraid of God because God's scary or because God's... Uh, evil or bad or anything like that, they're afraid of God because of their sin, because of their guilt, because of their shame, right? And so we see very quickly that, uh, that all parts of creation are now messed up. The people are not relating to God the way they're supposed to. The people are not relating to each other the way they're supposed to. The people aren't relating to the rest of creation the way that they're supposed to. And it's a, it's a mess. And if we look at that, we need God to do something about it. We need God to act. This is not something that Adam and Eve could fix themselves. This is not something that, that, that we could fix ourselves. This is something where we need God to do something. 
And, and Pastor Drake did a good job t- teaching us that and, and emphasizing that, that uh, theme last week uh, from, from Numbers when he preached about the fact that we need a promise from God. We need God to do something. Well, you might think it's kind of odd that we're looking at the, at the Old Testament for a promise from God. You may think it's kind of odd we're looking at the Old Testament for, for God to do something. You might think it would be, maybe you think it would make more sense for us to, to look at the promise God made to Mary, right? We just, the, the song that, uh, that Andrew and Holly just sang, thank you all so much for that. Uh, the song that they just sang is, is based on Mary's response when the angel comes to her and promises her that a, that a Savior is going to be born. So that might be kind of a... Um, kind of a natural place to go to to look for, for God's promise to us, or um, e- even a little bit before that, we might think about God's promise to Elizabeth and, and Zechariah that they're going to have a son, John the Baptist. Um, we, it might be natural even to, to go look at some of John the Baptist's preaching, because he's the, the purpose uh, that he came. He was sent from God as a prophet to prepare the way of the Savior, so it, so it might make sense to do that, to look and see what he said. Maybe even to look at some of Jesus' own predictions about himself, about his own life. But I think we're going to see that these early chapters of Genesis, and especially this, uh, this verse, chapter 3, verse 15, is going to be the perfect place to see God's faithfulness to his creation and, and to his people. In, in, chapter thir- in chapter 3, starting in verse 14, uh, we talked about the punishment to the woman, talked about the punishment to the, to the man. This is the first punishment that God gives out. And he directs it toward the serpent. And here's what he says in verses 14 and 15. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, because you've tempted the woman to eat from the tree that I told them not to eat from, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Verse 15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. I want us to see this morning in this, in this verse, in this one single verse, I want us to see um, three blessings in this curse. Three blessings in this curse, or a, a blessing in the three aspects of this curse, Okay? And so the three points we have today is number one, blessings in a specific curse. Blessings in a specific curse. We'll see that at the very beginning of verse 15. And then secondly, blessings in a perpetual curse. And we'll see that in the middle part of verse 15, blessings in a perpetual curse. And then finally, point three, blessings in a victorious curse. Blessings in a victorious curse. We'll see that at the end of chapter Three, but first of all, blessings in a, in a specific curse. He says in verse 15, the very first part of this verse, he says, God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman. I'll put enmity between you and the woman. Now, enmity is not really a word that we use all that often. I think most of us probably just kind of, uh, out of context, kind of have an idea of what that word means. Um, I'm not sure that we could give a, a very good definition if I kind of called you out on the spot to do that, but I think we kind of know what that means. But I was looking up some different ways that that word could be translated or some, uh, some synonyms for that word, and, and I came up with a few. We might think of, of enmity as animosity, animosity between two people, or, or maybe even better as a personal hostility, personal hostility between two people, a, a, a lingering hatred between mortal enemies. 
God says there'll be enmity between the serpent and between the woman. And the serpent's already proven himself to be a, a, an enemy to the woman, right? We know the story, but if we look back to, uh, to verses 1 through 7 of chapter 3, we see where, where Satan comes to the woman. Um, he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now, it's interesting to note that God didn't say that, right? God didn't say you, sh- you shouldn't touch it. Mary's adding that. And we don't know why. Maybe she didn't hear what God said. Well, maybe she didn't even hear what God said at all. Perhaps God, because we have a record of God speaking to Adam, and then we can assume that Adam maybe told that to Mary or told that to Eve. Perhaps God Perhaps God told that to Eve at some point, and we're just not told about it. We don't know. But for whatever reason, Mary adds that part, that that not only are we not supposed to eat it, we're not supposed to touch it, lest you die. Verse 4, but the the serpent said to the woman, you're not surely going to die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. From, from very early on in this, in this story about creation, we see that the, the serpent has already made himself an enemy to the woman and, 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 and to the man as well, but here specifically an enemy to the woman. And, and God says in verse 15 that we're going to see that warring continue. There will be a, 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 a warring, an animosity, an, an enmity between the woman and the serpent. The serpent's going to continue trying to do her harm through his cunning, by calling God's character and faithfulness into question, by focusing her eyes on the situation and circumstances around her instead of what God said. Those are the tactics we see him already use there in those opening verses, Right? It's so what we already see. He, instead of coming to her as himself, as, as Satan, he presents himself to her as a serpent. He kind of hides his identity behind the, the serpent, right? He, he hides himself behind part of God's good creation. We also see him call God's character and faithfulness into question. He tells her that she's not really going to die by eating from the, fruit, from the tree the way that God said she would. She said, he, he tells her that she's going to become like God. He implies that, that God's not being completely truthful with her. He, he implies that God's kind of holding out on her a little bit and, and, and not wanting her to be to the same level as him. Satan says, you're not going to die. You're going to become like God. And then we see him focus her attention on the, on the tree and its fruit, how, how lovely it is to look at and how good it is for food. He gets her focused on that instead of focused on God's warning. And, and when she looks at it, she judges that it's beautiful and good, and she takes it and eats it. And gives it to her husband as well. We see Satan continuing to use those same, uh, those same tactics today, right? Surely he uses other tactics perhaps. But we see him at least using, using those three still today, right? He often, he often hides his real identity and motive behind, behind others. Sometimes he may come to you or come to us in the form of a, of a co-worker or a boss. Asking you to do something unethical or immoral to for the good of the company or to help cover up some mistake that was made. 
He may come to us sometimes as an authority figure or an expert that we think we can believe or trust, even when their recommendation goes against what God's word has said. Maybe, maybe he'll come to us as a, as a doctor who might encourage a young couple to have an abortion instead of going on with a difficult pregnancy or going on with a pregnancy that, that might result in a, in a birth of a baby that has some type of illness or something that would create a, a difficulty for, for life. He may come to us in the form of an accountant that, that gives us advice on how to kind of skirt the financial laws and get away with a few little, little things. He may come to us as a, as a coach who maybe teaches his team how to, how to kind of uh, not really break the rules, but kind of bend the rules a little bit and not get caught, to give your team a little, little edge or advantage. Sometimes he might even use a, a trusted friend or, or a family member to lead us away from the Lord, right? Maybe, maybe someone will, will say that, 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 that you're becoming a little too radical, right? Or, uh, you know, it's, it's fine to believe in God, it's fine to, to go to church, that kind of thing, but... Uh, but you're taking it a little too seriously. You're, you're letting it kind of run away with you here. Often he, he tries to call God's character and faithfulness into question in our minds. When, when bad things happen in life, we're often tempted to question, where is God? And why is he letting those things happen? What is he doing? Why is he allowing this to happen for so long? We may wonder how this situation could really be for our good. In those kind of situations, I'm reminded of what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, God is too good to be unkind, and he's too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. When we can't see what God's doing, when we can't see why he's doing it, we must trust his character. But Satan comes to us and Calls that into question. Perhaps most common of all, God gets us to, or Satan gets us to, to focus our attention on the situation around us and the circumstances around us instead of what God has said. We see, we see him do all three of these things with, with the woman, and, and, and we see him do all three of these things with us today. God says there's going to be enmity between the woman and the serpent. We've already seen that. We've already seen this, this hostility. We've already seen the, the serpent go against her in these early verses of chapter 3. And, and God says that that's going to continue. Right? So you may be wondering, well, how is this a blessing? Right? It doesn't sound like a good thing. How, how do we see a blessing in, in, in this part of the curse? How is it or where is it that we see God's, God's promise here? And, and I really think we do. I really think this is a blessing, that there's going to be enmity between the serpent and the woman. First of all, this is not a situation where kind of good and evil are, are, are working their way out in the world, and, and, and they're kind of fighting one another and see who's going to win. Satan is not on the level of God. Satan is not on the level of God. In fact, look at, look at verse 15. Look at it clear, closely. Look at it clearly. Look what it says. The first three words of verse 15 says, I will put enmity between the serpent and the woman. This is something that God's going to do. This is not something that's just happening kind of naturally because the woman's been burned once by the serpent. This is something that God says he will do. I will put enmity between the serpent and the woman. And I do think this is a, I do think this is a good thing. 
Often in the Bible, we see God use judgment to, to bring about blessings. He uses uh, the Israelites being enslaved in Egypt to rescue them from, from famine. He uses Israel being, captive, uh, being captivated by the, by the Assyrians and uh, Judah being conquered by the Babylonians. He sees that. We see God use those things to drive people back to himself. Flip over with me to, to, chapter, 20, or to chapter 3, verse 22. Look at this. This is the end of chapter 3. This is kind of the end of the, of the punishment for the, for the uh, disobedience. Look at, look at verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from that garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way or to guard the, the way to the tree of life. When God kicks them out of the Garden of Eden, that, that's a punishment, right? That's a judgment. That's a curse. That's, that's not a good thing. Now they're going to have to work hard for their food, just like God told the man in his curse. You're going to have to work hard for your food. You're not going to live in the garden anymore where you can just go and, and, and pick things off the trees and it'd be easy. But I think that's also a blessing because God is kicking them out, putting the, the, the angel there to guard the way back because God doesn't want them to come back in the garden and eat from the tree of life. Remember, there are two trees that are named in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And what would have happened if Adam and Eve had gotten back in the garden and eaten from the tree of life in their fallen sinful state, right? God says, I'm going to kick you out of the garden as a punishment for you, but also as a way of protecting you from continuing in your sinful fallen state forever. So sometimes we see God use, often we see God use judgment punishments as a, as a blessing, and, and, and here we see the same thing. God promises he's going to put enmity between the serpent and the woman, and this is a good thing. It's a blessing for the woman. It's, we're going to see it's not a blessing for the serpent, but it is a blessing for the woman. The serpent's her enemy, and he's trying to do her harm, and God's making it so that there's an enmity between them. God's making it so there's a hostility between them to protect her from his attempts. God's putting this hostility, putting this animosity between them to protect the woman from the serpent. One, one preacher, Ligon Duncan, says this. He says, it is a divine established enmity designed to protect the woman from the enemy of her soul. The woman had been drawn to the enticing words of Satan. Now God is establishing a barrier, a wedge, a warfare, an enmity between the woman who had been enticed and deceived and the one who had enticed and deceived her. He's establishing a barrier between her and the enemy of her soul. Just like parents establish a, a healthy fear or, or sense of danger towards certain types of strangers in their children for their protection, God also puts enmity between the woman and the serpent for the woman's benefit so that she won't come too close to him, so that there's a distance between them now where he's not able to entice her the way that he did before, so he's not able to tempt her the way that he did before. The woman now knows that he is her enemy, and, and God has done that. We see a blessing in this specific curse between the, the, the serpent and the woman. But we also see that this is going to end up being a perpetual curse. Look at the second part of verse 15. He says, uh, I will put enmity between the woman, between you and the woman, and he says, between your offspring and her offspring. 
I'll put enmity between your offspring and her offspring, the serpent's offspring and, and the woman's offspring. Well, what is the serpent's offspring? What does that mean? And what is the woman's offspring? What does that mean? I don't think he's talking about baby snakes. Okay? Because remember, the serpent is Satan, and Satan doesn't reproduce. But what is it that Satan does produce? What is it that Satan does produce? He produces sin. He produces death, division, separation from God. These are products of, of the serpent that we see and we continue to see even today. We see sin all around us. We see sin all in us, right? Death seems to rule over us. Many people dread death and, and are trying to avoid death. They fear death. Even to the point that they try all kinds of techniques and surgeries and topical ointments and all kinds of stuff to try to defy the aging process, try to defy death. It causes people grief and depression as we, as we miss family members who have recently passed away. We miss spouses that we were married to for tens of years or decades. We miss friends that have spent our lives with. Often we don't know how we'll go along without them. I remember uh, Josh Powell, some of you remember him, he used to say that uh, when we're driving down the road and we see an animal on the side of the road that a car is hit or something, some, some roadkill there, that should be a reminder to us, even that should be a reminder to us that, that death is not natural, death is not part of, part of creation, that death is something that, that reminds us that there's something wrong here, something that Satan produces. He also produces divisions, and we see all kinds of divisions between people, between different types of people since the fall. We see division along racial lines, people who think that they're better than others because of the race that they are, their ethnicity. We see divisions among wealthy people and poor people. We see poor people who despise the wealthy and have... Uh, are, are jealous toward the wealthy. We, have, we, we see wealthy people who despise the poor. and uh, Even here in Orleans City, we, we see divisions between the East End people and the South End people, right? Even among families. We just passed Thanksgiving, we have Christmas coming up, and, and we hear stories all the time about people who have to have two or three different Christmas celebrations because this son can't be with that son, or... This daughter-in-law can't stand this cousin. And, and so we have people that have to have two or three different Christmas parties to keep family members separated. And this is something that, that Satan produces. The most serious thing that he produces is, is separation from God, right? Again, Ligon Duncan uh, reminds us that, that since the fall, there's been a natural enmity between us and God. God says he's going to put an enmity between the serpent and the woman, but there's been a natural enmity, a natural animosity, a natural separation between us and God, right? We saw Adam and Eve hide from God because they were afraid of him and they feared him. Sin divides us and separates from us from God. It creates a barrier between us and God. In fact, even the New Testament goes so far as to say that we're haters of God. The seed of the serpent is what the serpent produces. Well, what's the seed of the woman? It's what the, what the woman produces. 
right? What the woman produces. People. This enmity between the woman and the serpent is going to continue, and it's going to be widespread. It's going to be between his descendants, between what he produces and what she produces. It's going to be widespread. It'll, It'll be among all people. This curse is going to reach all people eventually, all continents, all nations, all ages, men and women, all people. And yet we also can look at this, and we have the benefit of the rest of the Bible as well, but we can look at this and we can see that there's this, this, uh, this seed of the woman, this, this, what the woman produces, people, but there's a specific offspring of the woman. There's a specific seed of the woman that's mentioned here. Why does he say the seed of the woman anyway? Why does God say that? Why does he say the seed of the woman? Why did he not give this curse uh, to, to the serpent? Why did he not say the seed of the man? Right? Look, look over to Genesis chapter 10. And, and this is kind of typical throughout the Bible. We see this many different places. Uh, Genesis chapter 10 is, is a big genealogy, right? A list of, of who all gave birth to who all, who gave birth to who all. And, and, and look at that. Look down at verse, um, look down at verse, uh, verse 15. Uh, sorry, look at, look at verse 21 because it becomes a little bit more clear as we go along. Look at verse 21. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, and children were born. The sons of Shem, and he names them all. The sons of Aram, he names them all. Um, and then he says in verse 24, um, Art Pekshad fathered, fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber, and Eber, uh, two Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, uh, and it tells why, and, and it goes on, and, and you can read that. I'm not going to read all that. But the point is, in those genealogies, it's constantly... The, the, the father of this person, the father of this person, the father of this person, the father of this person. All throughout the Bible, we can look at the New Testament as well. Turn to Matthew chapter 1. This is Jesus' genealogy, right? Look, look at Matthew chapter 1. In Matthew chapter 1, we see very much the same thing. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. And it goes on and on and on, and it's always the father of a son, the father of the son, the father of the son. All throughout these Old Testament and New Testament biblical uh, genealogies, the family line is traced through the son. But here in Genesis 3.15, it says it's going to be the seed of the woman, right? Well, where do we see a seed of a woman in the New Testament or in the Bible? Look down toward the end of Matthew's genealogy, right? He continues on, the son of so-and-so. He gets down to to verse 6. Jesse was the father of David, the king, and then David was the father of Solomon. And he he goes on down to to verse 12. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiod. And and it goes on down. And look down to verse, um, look down to verse 15. Eliad was the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar was the father of Mathen, and Mathen was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Christ was born. See the change? His father was, a, was so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, the father of so-and-so, the father of so-and-so, the father of Joseph, who was the husband of Mary, who was the mother of Jesus. Remember, Jesus didn't have a, have a natural father. Remember, Mary was, was a virgin when Jesus was born. We sang about that just a little bit ago. Why is it that God points out there's going to be enmity between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman? I think it's clearly because he's pointing out that there's going to be an offspring of a woman that's going to come. 
And, and today we know that person as Jesus. We know that offspring as, as, as Jesus. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul writes this. He says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his, his son, born of woman, born under the law so that, he might, so that we might receive adoption as sons. In the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman. That's not just saying that he was a human, although he was a human. It's not just saying that he, that he took on humanity, took on flesh, but specifically he's the son of a woman, not the son of a father, right? God promises that this enmity between the serpent and the woman is going to continue through the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring, but there's a promise here implied that there's going to be a specific seed of the woman, a specific descendant of the woman who's going to come, and that's the one we're looking to. Some people call this passage, by the way, the, the first gospel. This is the first promise that God has made. This is the first time we see God saying something. He, he's going to do something about, about sin. He's going to do something about the fall. And, but the only reason this can be any good news at all is because it's also a victorious curse. It's not only a specific curse between the serpent and the woman, not, a, not only a perpetual curse between the woman's offspring and the serpent's offspring, but it's also a victorious curse between a specific offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. He says at the end of verse 15, he says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, there, that's a little bit complex or a little bit confusing because of the pronouns. What he's saying is the offspring of the woman shall bruise the serpent's head and the serpent shall bruise the offspring of the woman's heel. Well, that's a little odd. That's a little odd, maybe. What's the deal with this head and this heel? Why does he say the serpent's going to wound his heel? Why does he say he's going to wound the serpent's head? Well, think about the difference between a heel wound and a head wound, right? What's a, what's a heel wound? It's, it's bad. It's painful. You might walk with a limp for a while. It might, it might really hurt. It might be debilitating, but it's not life-threatening, right? Most of the time, you recover from a heel wound. Even if you have to have your foot amputated, most of the time you recover from a, from a, from a heel wound. And we see the serpent attack Jesus throughout his life in the New Testament, right? He tried to prevent his birth. Remember with Herod having all the, uh, all the babies under a certain age killed and they had to flee to Egypt to get away from him? He tried to, tried to stop his birth. He tried to, tried to, to uh, disqualify Jesus for his mission. Remember the temptations where he tried to get Jesus to sin? He tried to shortcut his mission, he thought, by having Judas betray Jesus. He even tried to kill him on the cross. And these were real, I mean, this was a real war. It was a real battle. These were real wounds to Jesus, if we want to think about them that way. Remember Jesus in the garden, sweating drops of blood and praying because he was dreading what was going to happen on the cross. He was dreading having the sins of the world placed on him, the guilt of the world, and having the wrath of God poured out toward those sins on him. These are real things that, that happened, and they really were bad. In Isaiah 53, we read, He was wounded for our transgressions. Jesus was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. We see him with scars, even after the resurrection, when he comes to Thomas. Remember, he has the scars still and, and shows them. These are, real, these are real wounds toward Jesus, but they're only heel wounds, right? They're not head wounds. A head wound is fatal. 
oftentimes, most of the time. If you get hit with a knife on the heel, it's going to hurt. But if you get hit in the, uh, with a knife in the head, it's likely going to kill you. It's much more serious than a heel wound. Josh is going to preach in a couple of weeks about the promise being fulfilled. But we need to look forward just for a moment and see that God is faithful and he does what he says he will do. He has done what he promised he would do. And he did it in two stages. He did it kind of in, in two different parts, right? The first part, Jesus dealt a, a, death bowl, a death blow to Satan on the cross. We read several places about this in the New Testament. In, in Romans chapter 8, Paul says, For God was, has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter says, He himself, Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And then he says this, by his wounds, you have been healed. Perhaps the most encouraging to us today would be 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Satan is defeated. He has been defeated because his only weapon is defeated. Sin, guilt, death, those things have been removed. Jesus has overcome those things. He has no power over us now. He only has the power that we give him. Now, he still tempts us, and he still tries to, to destroy us, and he still uh, you know, tries to, to undercut the work of God in our lives and in the life of our church, but he has no power and authority now. He's in his death throes, and, and all power and authority has been taken away from him. But there's another stage to this that's coming, right? We're still waiting the final full fulfillment of this promise. And it'll come when Jesus returns and Satan is cast down to hell to be punished forever. And we await that day. We, we long for that day. Much like the ancient Hebrews and the prophets would, would look back on Genesis 3.15 and, and, and wonder, when is God going to do what he said he was going to do? And long for, when is that day going to come? We should long now for Jesus to return for his second coming. Even as the hymn says, soon and very soon, God will send Jesus for the second time and we'll see death and sin and Satan done away with forever. Let's long for that day. Let's pray for that day. Let's work for that day. You may think it's kind of odd to go to the Old Testament to see God's, God's promise about coming salvation, but I think it's the perfect place to go. I think that's the perfect verse to go because in it we do see God promising to deliver his people. In fact, we might think about the Old Testament as divided up into kind of three sections. You have Genesis chapters 1 and 2 in the first part of chapter 3 where you got creation and the fall. That's the first section. And then you've got Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 is the second section. And that's God making a promise to his people. And then we see the rest of the Bible from the rest of Genesis chapter 4 all the way to Revelation chapter 22 is the story of how God kept that promise in Genesis 3.15. When we were in a situation where we could not fix ourselves, we could not help ourselves, just like that dog under that, under, that, uh, under that desk trying to get away from himself, we need someone to come and act for us. And God has promised that he will do it, and we're in a position to see him having already started the process of that fulfillment. Let's long for him to continue, let's pray for him to continue, and let's follow our Savior who is worthy of our lives. Let's pray. 
Father God, we thank you so much this morning for uh, just for your word, Father, for how good it is. God, we thank you that when Adam and Eve uh, blatantly disobeyed your commandment to them and, and, and did the one thing that you had, had, had told them not to do, Father, we thank you that you didn't give up on your creation, you didn't give up on people, but you promised that you were going to do something about it. And God, even that very day, you began doing something about it. And God, we're thankful this morning that we can look back to how you have fulfilled this promise. And God, we long for you to bring the full, complete fulfillment of this promise to pass. God, we thank you for our Savior Jesus, and we pray that he would come back soon to get his church. It's in his name we pray. Amen. We're about to sing one, one final hymn today. Um, this may be the, maybe the, the first time you've ever heard this promise. It may not be. Uh, but maybe you've never responded to this promise before. Maybe you've never responded to God's action in, in Jesus on our behalf. And if not, then I invite you to come up. And, and, and we've got three pastors here this morning, four pastors here this morning. Any of us would love to talk to you about that. Perhaps you want to become part of God's family, join, join God's church. Uh, here we would love to talk to you about that as well.